fighter jet aircraft every morning and flies it to try to teach all these 25-year-old young gun guys not only how to fly, okay, 75 years old. He is invited to be a part of governor's breakfast. He's invited to be a part of a lot of different things. I'm going to make my way over there. But I want to pitch real quick that is the typical guy that doesn't go to church, the one, the, the loved one, get on the phone right now and let them know that they are going to be inspired by what you're about to see. I have looked forward to this so much. This two-minute clip introduces one of the most incredible individuals that will be coming to the stage in just a moment, Russell Quinn. From an early age, Russell O'Quinn started on a course that would lead him to become an internationally known test pilot and aircraft designer. Against his parents' wishes, Russell learned to fly and became a pilot at age 14. Russell went on to join the Air Force and later became an executive at Douglas Aircraft Company in 1956. After leaving Douglas in 1965, Mr. O'Quinn established Flight Test Research, the first civilian high-performance flight test company in the United States. He discovered a legal loophole that allowed him to acquire a fleet of jet fighters and convert them to high-performance test beds for the aerospace industry and the Department of Defense. The press referred to him as the owner of the world's 14th largest jet air force. In 1969, the U.S. State Department asked Mr. O'Quinn to develop and head the U.S. food airlift to Biafra during the Nigerian Civil War. More than 8 million Biafrans were under siege, with up to 25,000 a day dying of starvation, mostly children. Using four giant C-97 Stratofreighter transports on loan from the Air Force, Russell and his crews flew more than a thousand relief missions under combat conditions. They delivered hundreds of thousands of tons of food every night while being shot at by anti-aircraft guns and MiG jet fighters and bombers attacking them while unloading on the ground. Over six million lives were ultimately saved. In 1972, the State Department called on him again to perform a similar program in Bangladesh where millions more were saved in remote areas that had been devastated by civil war and a massive typhoon. He designed a unique multi-bagging system that enabled him and his crews to airdrop rice without the costly use of cargo parachutes. Utilizing two C-130 Hercules aircraft, hundreds of thousands of tons of rice and food grains were airdropped to unreachable areas where multitudes were starving. More recently, O'Quinn has designed and developed a new concept tactical jet fighter, manufactured the prototype, and is currently continuing to flight test and demonstrate to the U.S. military. Mr. O'Quinn has been featured in Life magazine as one of the top test pilots in the United States. He has been a guest on the Today Show and other programs. A television special about O'Quinn and his jet fighter program entitled Skyfox is currently aired on PBS. He is a nationally acclaimed dynamic speaker, much in demand at events sponsored by governors, mayors, military agencies, the aerospace industry, as well as churches and Christian organizations. Russell's unique background and perspective allow him to reach many men and women who would never visit a church or Christian event, but who find themselves challenged and inspired by God's work in and through his life.
welcome Russell O'Quinn to the Praise the Lord set. The, uh, you know what? The uh, not quite retire. Are you ever going to retire? Don't know. Yeah. No? You don't know or you know or well, just. Probably, probably another two or three years. But, yeah. Uh, you know what? You know what impacted me? Uh, on the cover of Life magazine, there was a story of five uh, experimental uh, fighter jet pilots that you were standing with 18 months after the picture was taken for Life magazine. You were the only one alive. God's got his hand on you. And you know what? I am so impressed. In addition to everything that you just learned about him, one other thing is we, as in Generation Entertainment, and mainly Rich Cook, who flew in the back seat with you of that experimental fighter plane, strapped a 35-millimeter camera for the movie Maghetto. Did anyone see the movie Maghetto that we did for producer right here? That movie had a 35 millimeter, air, uh, 35 millimeter, uh, what kind of camera was it, Rich? Just an airy or an airy camera that we strapped onto the back of your Skyfox, and then you flew along the desert floor and then straight up into the air to create one of the most dynamic shots for our movie, of which I thank you for doing that. And it was a blessing that, uh, that Russell did. Please make, uh, I'm stalling a little bit to give you that time to call someone. We're going to give the next few minutes uh, to Russell O'Quinn, and please pay attention. Uh, incredible um, gift that God gave you uh, to speak uh, to those that are now watching. God bless you, and welcome again. I know about half of you are expecting somebody to look like Tom Cruise to stand up here, but... <laughs> If it'll help your disappointment, Andy, I used to look like Robert Redford. But, uh, but let me explain a little bit further of what Pat has explained. Uh, there aren't many men at my age that do what I do. There are perhaps five or six of us through peculiarities, some politics, and a variety of other things uh, that are still at it. And as uh, Matt said, I still am active. I fly a new generation jet fighter and about five specialized missions that we've learned a lot about since Desert Storm. And it's fun at this age to go out there and tangle with youngsters. We do a lot of that uh, in order to evaluate the ever-changing weapon systems and maneuvers that go along with them. So we go out and fly against Top Gun pilots and Red Flag pilots, and it's fun to go out there and tangle with them. It sells my ego to have their unit commander say, don't you go out there and fool with that old man unless you want to get embarrassed. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, <laughs> that's a little bit of uh, who I am and what I'm doing. Now, God has privileged me uh, to be a witness and as I've sat here and listened uh, this evening to this program, why I'm all the more impressed with the need for us to be able to witness uh, where we can and where God brings us to uh, and brings us to people. Years and years ago, an old preacher, I'll never forget, uh, thumped me on the, sh on the chest and said, listen, young man, you can reach people I can never reach. And that's, that's proven true because now, today, I'm able to go to places that would not come to a meeting like this one. They would not listen to a program like this one. And I've watched them as I've uh, been invited places where no preacher, no evangelist generally would be invited and begin to give this message. And you can see slightly as they begin to change because first they're looking for the exits <laughs> to determine whether they can get out without anybody seeing them. And then little by little, why, with some of the things that God has given me, 
why they began to listen, and eventually I'm able to give my testimony, which I'm going to do here tonight. Now, aviation began for me at a very early age. You can believe this or not, but I knew what I wanted to do at the age of five. It was during the Depression years, and my parents were like a lot of people back then in the 30s. They didn't have much money. We lived here in Southern California in Van Nuys. In fact, my dad was a little better off than some. He was able to afford a half-finished two-room house. And about the time I was five years old, my mother had an occasion to be away for a couple of weeks, and my dad was left with me, the five-year-old, and a whole lot of things he had to keep doing. Now, my dad's a very creative guy. He was able to do a multiplicity of things and look after me at the same time, and he did very well until about the middle of this two-week period when he made a mistake. He decided to finish roofing the house. Now, being a creative guy, he devised a unique method for looking after me and doing that at the same time. He took me up on the roof with him and nailed the seat of my pants to the roof. And, uh, <laughs> and ladies, <laughs> ladies, I want to tell you, <laughs> Ten Penny Nail is a very effective babysitter. <laughs> and uh, his idea was that the nail was to keep me from sliding off the roof. And he thought he had a captive audience and was going to instill in my young mind some practical education by my watching him shingle this roof. But what the poor man didn't know was he'd bought this house right under the final approach to the local airport, and I spent the entire afternoon watching fly, airplanes fly overhead. And so strong are those pictures, I can still see them to this day. Now, thus began my love affair with the airplane. And my parents were terrified of aviation. They tried everything they could to get me to stop. But uh, as I grew older and grew into my teens and began to learn how to fly, why, they realized that it was not going to go away. So they allowed me to continue my first love. I tried very hard to get into professional aviation because I knew that's what I wanted to be in my life's work, but I didn't know how to do that. Uh, and I sought for ways to be able to do that. And about that time, a movie came out that greatly attracted me. It was called Test Pilot. It starred Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Myrna Loy. Had Clark Gable flight testing the very latest airplanes of the day across the screen. And he and Spencer Tracy were involved in the latest technologies. And it was just a thrilling portrayal of a new area of aviation that opened itself up in front of me. I went to see that movie, I think, a hundred times. It almost memorized me, but uh, at any rate, why, well, it didn't tell me how to quite get there. But there was another thing that occurred that I found out about. They had just restarted the National Aerobatic Championships after World War II had ended. And the best pilots in the country went to compete. And whoever won that competition was Mr. Somebody in aviation. And I figured if I could begin studying aerobatics and get good enough someday to be able to compete in that competition and then by some miracle one day win it, why, that would be a major stepping stone into the area of aviation I was interested in. So I began studying aerobatics. I had a lot of help along the way to begin with. And again, my parents uh, were not in favor of it. Until one day, after about three months, I was out in the practice area one day at about 3,000 feet, practicing eight-point slow rolls and other aerobatic maneuvers. And my dad happened to be driving along underground underneath that area, looked up, saw this airplane, and he somehow or another knew who was flying that, so we had a grounding exercise and, uh, and a good deal of talk. But finally, uh, they weren't able to prevail. Now, in those days, we used to spend our summers being taken back to Oklahoma, to my grandparents' roots. Now, my grandparents were pioneers in the state of Oklahoma. They went into the land rush of 1889 and homesteaded large sections of land around Oklahoma City. In fact, my grandfather established the first dairy in the state of Oklahoma. It wasn't any tremendous empire. It was a marvelous place for a city kid like me to be able to ride horses, you know, and swim in the streams and sleep on under the stars that your saddle is a pillow. And after I'd get over my peak of having to leave aviation for three months, because that was a secret reason for these trips, why I uh, began to enjoy those summers. I got to meet all the family clan, all the aunts and the uncles. 
and the cousins. And early on, I had identified a rather strange aunt. I don't know if you've had a weird relative or two in your family tree, but I sure did. And this woman did weird things. At least they were weird to me. She prayed out loud before she ate her meals at dinner time. Read her Bible right out in front of everybody. Went to church two, three times a week. Well, those are strange things to me because they were missing in my growing up period. My mother and father were fine moral people, but apparently there just wasn't time for that in our family. Oh, we went to church maybe once a year to be kept from being called heathens in the neighborhood, but that made this woman terrifying to me. And I was always afraid someday she was going to corner me and pour religion down my throat or something terrible like that. And so I stayed as far away from her as I could until the last summer I went back. I had just graduated from high school and I went back one last time and she succeeded in cornering me. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. And, uh, but she didn't begin to talk to me at all about what I was afraid she was going to. I don't know she was going to talk about religion, but she began on this wise. She said, you know, if you're ever going to amount to anything in this profession you've chosen, you ought to go on to college, get a higher education, get an aeronautical engineering degree. Well, I was ready to reject that out of hand because I already had my number one educational objective, and that was to go to Florida and enter the aerobatic competitions. But before I could get that out of my mouth, while she dangled a carrot in front of me, I couldn't resist. She said, if you'll go to college, I'll pay for the first year's room, board, and tuition. So I thought, well, what a deal. <laughs> uh, I should have known better when she already had the college picked out. But nonetheless, why? <laughs> that September, I found myself standing on the campus of a small college in Arkansas, in the Ozarks. And after I'd registered and went checked into the men's dormitory, I got settled in my room. I decided to go out and explore the campus. As I was walking along the sidewalks, I ran into a bunch of nuts carrying Bibles under their arms. <laughs> and I knew instantly that my aunt had betrayed me. <laughs> And I marched back to my room, determined to pack and leave the next day. But a strange thing occurred that evening. Little by little, I ran into 14 of the guys of the same ilk I was. They, too, had been conned to come into this nut house just like I had. <laughs> and they, too, had been out walking the sidewalks. And somehow or another, why, you know how birds of a feather sort of flock together. I think we'd all found each other by about 2 o'clock in the morning. And we decided it would be much more fun, instead of leaving, to stick around and form a club and see what kind of devilment we could create for these nuts. <laughs> and uh, that's what we did. And in those days, why, I found out several things. First of all, I found out my aunt had made a mistake. She'd put the entire years with her room board and tuition in cash in my hands. <laughs> she was a wise woman, but not too smart. And, uh, and you know, money does strange things to people. It sure did to me. It opened up whole new vistas of opportunity for me. In fact, I began to research with my newfound wealth. And in my research, I discovered several things. And the first and most important one, because I'll leave some of this out, is uh, that you could buy a pretty advanced Army training aircraft, war surplus, for about half the amount my aunt had given me. So I made a snap decision. I decided I'd pay for the first half of the year's room board tuition. We let the second half worry about itself when it got here. And I bought one of these airplanes. And with that, I continued my aerobatic training. Now, I thought I could get away with it. I thought I could ha handle two educational objectives at the same time. And there is some method to this madness, though, by the way. Uh, those competitions I referred to go on to this day. They've been greatly advanced. In fact, they're an Olympic event now. And a great deal of good for aviation has come out of them. But in those days, anyone that wanted to compete would develop a series of maneuvers. And when he perfected them, why, he'd present them before a board. And if he was accepted, why, he could enter competition. And I've been working hard on my series of maneuvers. These maneuvers are very difficult to learn. They're even more difficult to perfect a competition level. And so finally, why, as I began my aerobatic uh, 
uh, pursuit. Why, some of the guys that were with me in this uh, ill-found activity of ours used to ride in the back seat with me. Three of them were pilots. And one day, one of them began to bug me to check him out in this airplane. Now, I'd been performing an unusual entry maneuver. Entry maneuvers are very important. They're the first uh, thing that you see. And first impressions are always important, particularly here. And I'd selected a low-altitude vertical snap roll that uh, was very spectacular but very dangerous, and I'd been practicing it for quite some time. And one of the pilots in this group began to bug me to check him out in this airplane. He'd never flown anything quite as advanced as this airplane was, and since he was ahead of my fuel brigade, why, I couldn't exactly not, uh, tell him no. So I put him in the back seat, and I flew with him for several hours, I mean in the front seat while I was in the back, until the day came that he was proficient in the aircraft. And we went out to the air, to the base, to solo him. And we did the walk-around inspection, and I helped him on with his parachute. We got up on the wing, and I watched him uh, strap in and go through the start procedure, and I tapped him on the shoulder and got down off the wing and watched him taxi away. He got down to the end of the runway and did the run-up in the pre-flight checklist, just like I trained him. Turned around and lined up at the runway. Took off and climbed to about 30 feet, leveled off, retracted the landing gear and the flaps. Pulled up and tried to emulate the maneuver that he'd ridden with me through so many times before. And at about 500 feet, he lost control of the airplane, pitched over and dove straight into the ground at about 150 miles an hour. Now, I had never seen death before. And to say I was a shocked young man is a gross understatement. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. But I wasn't shocked enough that my education didn't move forward again in ways I never dreamed that it would. It hit me like a runaway freight train that I was responsible. That was a word I didn't know much about. But if anybody belonged in that pile of smoking wreckage, it was me and not my friend, and I knew it. Another thing struck me that day might be worth remembering for some of you. I've never forgotten it. It suddenly dawned on me that somebody had been following me. And I'd never had anybody follow me before. And I couldn't conceive of anybody emulating what I was doing, but it was very evident that day that somebody had been following in my footsteps. And for death, I had no answer whatsoever. I went back to my dormitory room after the events of that day, and locked the door. I got down on my knees beside my bed and tried to pray. I'd never prayed before in my life. I didn't know how to pray. And the only thing I could do was cry out and say, Oh God, what's happened to me today is too great for me to bear. I can't handle it. And somehow or another, I remembered a formal prayer. And I prayed that. And I said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus Christ's sake. Well, that night I discovered that there is indeed a God. Because he answered my prayer and he changed my life and has not been the same since. <laughs> May I simply say praise the Lord. Praise the very next day he did something else to confirm what he had done that night in answer to my prayer. <sighs> this may not seem like much to you. But this was a miracle to me. The very next day, I had a sudden desire to begin studying the Bible. To me, that was a miracle. If you'd have told me prior to this day I'd have ever had any interest whatsoever in studying that book, I'd have laughed in your face. But as I began to study the Bible, little by little, I came across a verse later on that spoke of what God had done for me in answer to that prayer that night. And that verse in the Bible says this, that if any man be in Christ, he becomes a new creation. Old things pass away. And behold, all things become new. I'm going to have to hurry to tell you some of my story because some of it is important to you that are here and to some of you that are out there in the audience listening. 
I went on to be able to achieve every dream I've ever had as a boy. Oh my, and then some. Several years ago, I was selected as the project test pilot for an advanced weapon system. That weapon system was used recently in Desert Storm and more recently in Afghanistan and Iraq. Most of you have seen it in te on television. It's been very effective. Thousands of people were involved in the development of the system, several aerospace companies. It was a cooperative effort. And when the prototype units were completed, why, it was time to fly them. And we'd converted an advanced jet fighter into a test bed and installed this system in it. And the day came to fly for the first time. And I went out to the base at about 5 in the morning, suited up and briefed, went out and strapped this fire breather on, sat there on the ground for about two hours, functioning the system, telemetering the data to a variety of receivers around where people were analyzing it. And after we were all satisfied that the system was operating properly, why, I started engines and taxied to the end of the runway. After a last-minute tweaking, I took off inclined to about 30,000 feet and leveled off. In the interim, why, the sun had come up, and it turned into one of these picture-perfect days the azure blue sky and the puffy white clouds. And I had about 10 minutes to get to the test area where I was to begin performing the first series of maneuvers that were printed out on the test card strapped to my kneeboard. And I had time to reflect. And again, my education moved forward unexpectedly. It hit me that right this instant, I was living every last dream I'd ever had as a boy. Clark Gable had never flown an airplane like this one. They never conceived of the technology I had on board. And boy... You know what I learned that day? <laughs> the dreams, when they come true, are not necessarily all they're cracked up to be. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not putting down dreams. They are indeed the stuff of life, and we are to pursue them. But unless God is the author of those dreams, you have a tragic disappointment awaiting you. Not long ago, I was asked to take the aircraft that I'm currently flying and do an unusual program. This program is the basis for why I go around the country and speak. I'm, I'm privileged to speak to large audiences, small audiences all over the country. And able, as I said, able to get in where others uh, haven't been able to. You haven't lived until you've spoken to 2,000 fighter pilots and their annual association that are arranged around eight bars and uh, try to present the gospel to them. Uh, that's an interesting experience. But God has permitted me to be able to capture their attention because of what he's given me in the past to gain their attention. And this is part of the attention getter. I was asked to take the aircraft do a unique program. There's a mission that's been uh, classified and has been on the back burner for several years. And uh, it's uh, now become very important. And uh, 18 young pilots were selected to fly through a new profile in a new aircraft that they're going to be getting. And I was privileged to be selected as the test pilot to demonstrate the new profile and the aircraft of the caliber they're going to be getting. We were all gathered together in the base auditorium on a Monday morning. And I was sitting out in the audience, and the general, commanding general for this mission, was up on the platform giving the introductions and the agenda for the two-week demonstration phase. And I was sitting out in the audience. And uh, while the general was going on, why... A young major that had been selected as the temporary commander for these young pilots was sitting just four chairs down from me, and he leaned over, he's talking to one of my associates, and he said, uh, who's the test pilot who's going to give us the flight demonstrations? And my wise guy associate said, it's the old guy sitting three chairs down. And I guess the major figured I couldn't hear so well, so he persisted. <laughs> and he said, well, is he going to need a cane? And uh, will, he, <laughs> will he need help out to the airplane every morning? And I let that go in one ear and not quite out the other. And... When the general finished, well, it was our turn. Now, we were concerned about this program. It was too tightly packed. 
And uh, primarily, the reason we were concerned is that not one of these young pilots had ever flown in a frontline jet fighter, ever sat on a state-of-the-art 00 rocket ejection seat, or worn half the equipment we wear, much less flown in this environment. So we took up the remainder of the day when the general finished giving critical briefings in areas that we felt were essential, because they wouldn't relent. More than that, they scheduled flying to begin the very next morning. And I wound up at about 7 in the evening, pointed to the young major, and I said, you're up first tomorrow morning. 0700 at the airplane, 800, or the 0700 briefing, 800 at the airplane. And so the next morning, why, we suited up and briefed and went out to the aircraft. And we always give a last minute, I'll call it an emergency briefing. It's really a critique. So that they know what our dialogue with the ground stations are going to be, what our emergency procedures are, how the seat operates, etc. Having done that, why, we got on board, strapped in, I started the engines, closed the air canopy, taxied the end of the runway, and took off, climbed out to their practice area. Now this, this new profile is about 30 minutes long in demonstration form. And if you've seen the movie Top Gun, we do every maneuver you saw, plus a whole lot more. A lot of our maneuvers are vertical in both directions, with entries between 5 and 7 positive G. With rapid reversals to 2 and 3 negative G, we wind up doing 600-mile-an-hour evasive tactics 100 feet off the desert floor, conclude with a pop-up maneuver. We enter that at 5G, go vertical, pull into an inverted position, and there's an instrument that presents a menu of targets. We select one, roll in on the target, do a simulated attack on it, come off of it, do two victory rolls, and we're done. And, it, <laughs> and if you haven't been doing that every morning after breakfast, <laughs> I guarantee you, why, it'll uncage your eyeballs for you. <laughs> so, uh... After we finished, landed, I taxied in the revetment while the young major was white as a sheet and had filled up two bags. And uh, <laughs> I opened the canopy and got out. And I couldn't wait until he got down because I couldn't resist. I leaned over and said, you want to borrow my cane? <laughs> Boy, for a bunch of Christians, you love revenge, don't you? <laughs> to conclude with this there's a lot more to this story but a couple of weeks after that I learned that I'd just been given a tremendous illustration it's why I go around the country and give this talk to people that would never sit in an audience like this one or listen to a program like this one I spoke to a group a woman had prayed for her husband for years he was a full Navy commander he agreed finally sat way back in the back and almost got up and walked out until finally why he began to listen. Afterwards, he came up after the handshaking line had diminished and grabbed my hand, looked me in the eye, and he said, I want you to know there's never another, there's not another man on the top side of this earth that could have reached me the way you reached me tonight. I prayed the prayer you asked me to pray. And his wife came up to us afterwards in tears and said that her prayers had been answered after all these years. God I have to close with this because, as I said, uh, it's uh, a little unusual for me to speak in this kind of a group. But that experience and that illustration that God gave me, and as I go around the country and speak, you see, I present it as an emergency briefing because there are many, many people that are in my audiences that have never heard that briefing. And this is a briefing about a flight that's out of this world. And it's one that you and I both are going to take. 
And I warn you, it's going to arrive much sooner than you ever wanted to. I don't care how long it takes, it's going to be too soon. I'm 75 right now. It is as much a phenomenon to me as it is to you that I crawl in the cockpit of that airplane and go out and do what I do. And I'm thrilled about it. But I'm very much aware that I can't do this for much longer. But it does not spell the end, spells the beginning. There's another verse that I've learned out of the Bible that I'll pass on to you. I know you all know it, but in case you haven't and you're out there listening to this briefing, friend of mine, this verse has been precious to me. And this is what God's word says, that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Friend, you and I may have not seen, we haven't seen anything yet. Forgive the vernacular, but we haven't seen a thing in comparison to what God has for us in the future. I urge you, friend, I don't know what God has given you in the way of an emergency briefing, but I'll close with this. Years and years ago, I was flying a jet fighter from a military base over to a civilian base. When I got there, it was all fogged in. And I started to do what's known as an ILS and got hooked up with radar and started the procedure and uh, descended into the clouds. And uh, a few minutes later, why a new voice came on the air. It was the senior controller, radar controller. And he said, how much fuel have you got? And I said, well, just a few minutes, but uh, enough to do whatever you might need. And he said, well, there's a little airplane up on top of the clouds. He's low on fuel, and he's scared, and he's never flown. In and in a few minutes, why, we're going to do some turns, and all I want you to do is turn when I turn. And then we're going to descend into the clouds. And he did. And we broke out at about 500 feet, and there in front of us were the brilliant strobe lights and the twin runway lights. And I can't tell you the emotion that man had when he embraced me afterwards. And it dawned on me. I had just been enabled with that which I had in my hands, one of the latest technologies known to man, electronics that made playthings out of this weather, to pull up alongside of someone that was lost and lead them home. I urge you, friend of mine, to look what God has given you. Look at your hands and see what God has put in, put in them. And use what God has given you to pull up alongside of somebody who's lost and lead them home. Thank you so much.